0: أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين الحمد لله الذي هدانا لهذا وما كنا لنهتدي لولا ان هدانا الله ثم الصلاه والسلام على اشرف الانبياء وسيد المرسلين وشفي للمذنبين سيدنا ونبينا وحبيب قلوبنا وطبيب نفوسنا وشفيع ذنوبنا ابي القاسم والصلاة والسلام على أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين المعصومين المذلومين المنتجبين لعصية مولانا وسيدي صاحب الأسر والزمان روحه وأرواحه العالمين له الفداء وأجل الله تعالى فرجه الشريف دائمة على الآن إلى قيام يوم الدين ما بعد ربي صدري ويصير لأمري وحل الأقدام من سني Yafkahu for the hastening of the return of our twelfth imam and our savior. And the Savior of all of humanity, Imam Al Hujjah, one salawat upon Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. <laughs> Before we begin for tonight, um, just a note here that tonight's Majlis and the Tabaruk has been sponsored by Brother Humayun Zaidi, Dr. Kamal Haider, Brother Muhammad Raza, Brother Qaiser Bajwa, and Brother Muhammad Alwan. Uh, if we can recite the Surah fatiha for their marhumin, for their thawab, and ask Allah to give their deceased loved ones the thawab of the Surah al-Fatiha. Surah al-Fatiha, please. Surah <laughs> al-Fatiha, One more salawat upon Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. (laughs) (laughs) Tonight being the third night of this month of Muharram. And as we continue in our commemorative sessions to remember the supreme sacrifice of Abba Abdelal Hussain and his family and friends on the 10th of Muharram in the year 61 after the Hijra. We continue with the topic that we began a few nights ago. And as you'll recall, the verse that we are basing this series on is from Surah Nu, chapter number 71 of the Qur'an, verse number 3. And as we know, Prophet Noah salam, was the very first of the Ulul-Azzam Prophets. ulul Azam we can roughly translate into English as the Prophet of firm resolve, of firm determination, of firmly committed to the message that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had given him. He was, as I mentioned previously, the first of the prophets of Allah to have been given a scripture. So although Prophet Adam was the first human being, but he was not given a book or a sharia, a code of life by Allah, it was not until about two or three generations after Prophet Adam that Prophet Nuh comes on the scene, and he becomes the first of the prophets that gets revelation. And one of the things that Prophet Noah is quoted in the Quran as telling his community, as a part of his mission, a part of his message, he says, that I command you, I recommend you, I advise you to worship God, to know and worship God, to have the taqwa, the consciousness, the awareness of Allah within your lives, and to obey me as the prophet of God. And as we said in the first night, that this very short verse of only about four or five words, It really outlines religion on a whole. If you want to know what Islam is, what is this religion that Allah has given throughout the ages to the prophets, to the messengers, it goes around three fundamental um, subjects or three fundamental pillars. We have obviously knowledge of Allah, Aqaid, our theology, which obviously it is wajib upon all of us to know Aqaid. We can't merely follow Allah or say I believe in one God because I learnt about it at school or in madrasa. We have to believe it and understand it to the best of our own ability. We have also, obviously after Tawheed, we have, you know, we have the Usul al-Din about belief in nubuwat, in qiyamat, in imamat, and the justice of Allah as an extension. Well we also have akhlaq, Islamic morality and ethics. How do we carry ourselves at home in the public? Right, how, what is the moral system, what is the moral compass of a believer entail? And the third aspect of Islamic teachings are the ahkam, the fiqh, the daily jurisprudence that we follow. And so when you put all three of these together, you get what is called deen, religion. You get what is called the religion of of Islam, of submission to Allah. And tonight I wanna look at this topic of many prophets, but one religion. You know Allah, as we know from this, there's a very interesting hadith, well not maybe very interesting, but it gives some light about prophethood. So Abu Dharr al-Ghifari, the very famous companion of the prophet, we've all heard of Abu Dharr. We know that the prophet would say that the sun has not shone, has not shone on anybody more truthful and honest than Abu Dharr, a great companion who was uh, uh, an ardent follower and supporter of the prophet and the family of the prophets. He one time comes to Rasulullah and he asks him, Ya Rasulullah, how many messengers had Allah sent? How many of these deputies had Allah sent to humanity? And the Prophet tells Abu Dhar that magic number that we all learn, 124,000 Prophets. So Abu Dhar was given this information. When we come to our era, Right, because we know Rasulullah was the final messenger in that entire chain of 124,000 prophets that were sent for the guidance of humanity. We know that about 26 or so are mentioned in the Qur'an by name. We have like Adam, we have Nuh, we have Idris, we have Musa, we have Isa, Ibrahim, Ishaq, Ismail, uh, Yaqub, Yunus, many other prophets. Three or four prophets are mentioned in the Quran, not by name. So you look at Surah Yasin, there's a story about uh, three other people. Allah says, that three people were sent to this group. There are other prophets like that mentioned by an indication, but their names are not mentioned in the Quran. All of these prophets come to humanity We expect them all to teach one message, which is submission to Allah, which is to follow the Messenger of Allah. But yet, when you and I look around the world today, we see not only tens, not hundreds, but we see thousands of religions today. Obviously, the most predominant religion in the world today in terms of numbers is Christianity. Number two is Islam. But then you have Buddhism, Hinduism, Shintoism, Taoism, You have Sikhism, you have all of these other isms and religions that continue to make up that number of the people who follow, whether it's a man-made religion or it is a divinely inspired and divinely taught set of teachings that have branched off. Tonight I want to look at this topic of many prophets but one religion. And how does the belief of there being many religions, how should that mold us living in a very multicultural pluralistic society that Canada is you know if you think about where most of you came from from back home in other parts of the world whether it's the Far East whether it's India or Pakistan or Iraq or Afghanistan or another country maybe that I'm not aware of we tend to live in countries which are very uh, they're very what can we say that there, there, there's not a lot of uh, you know variety, right? It's Muslims majority, 80, 90, 95, 98 percent Muslim. And then there are some groups, right? There are some Christians, some people from the Jewish community, some Sikhs, some Hindus. And so when we live in those countries, at one level it's great because we're all Muslims, we're all or a majority of Shia ibn let's say, so life becomes easy. We don't have to explain to our manager why we need the 10th of Muharram off, schools are closed, work is shut, right? And so those areas where we live, it makes it very easy to live. But we come to Canada, we come to Europe, we come to North America, and we recognize the fact that we are a minority within a minority. We're Muslims, which makes us a minority in the world. And then we're Shia, we're a minority within the Muslim world. And we obviously began to question a lot of things, and especially the younger generation because they're more exposed to friends at school who follow other religions, they're at work, they're interacting with people who follow other ways of life. A lot of questions began to creep up in the minds of these individuals. Obviously, living back home had its benefits and it also had its drawbacks. Obviously, Benefits as I said were it was easier to practice Islam. You didn't have to worry about You know the basics of religion the Adhan would be there. You'd go to the Masjid and pray Ramadan would come fasting was easy. Muharram would come. It's easy to go to the Majlis for the most part obviously there are certain parts of the Muslim world where we as Shia and Ashiri are not even allowed to have these kinds of gatherings and many of us maybe have lived in those parts of the world where We don't even know, can we make it to the majlis alive? And will we leave that gathering alive? But for the most part, life back home was very good. But one of the benefits of coming to this country, and there are many benefits, but there are also many drawbacks. One of the benefits obviously is more freedom to practice our religion as we are doing tonight and as we have been doing for this month of Muharram so far and as we will continue. But we also have a challenge of the fact that for some people to live in this kind of a country could be haram. Like in the books of the scholars, of the, of the maraja of the ulama, they have a term. They have a term in Arabic, al-hijra, which literally means that you're going back on Islam, that you, le- you lived in a Muslim country, in a Muslim society, you're able to practice your religion, albeit with some level of difficulty, and you left that environment to come to, whether the West or the East, it makes no difference, you move to a non-Muslim country, and now it becomes very difficult, if not impossible, to follow Islam. It becomes impossible to keep your children on the right path. You might even end up losing the children, as we have seen, unfortunately, many times, where our youth end up leaving religion altogether. They either become atheist or agnostic, Or they just don't identify as Muslims anymore. And scholars are quick to point out, based on a hadith of the Prophet and the family of the Prophet, (inaudible) that this sin of leaving a Muslim country, a predominantly Muslim country, coming to a country where it is not Muslim dominated, where we will not be able to practice our religion, where we will not be able to. Uh, convey Islam to the next generation that they say this is a major sin, one of the kaba'ir, a major sin, up there with the other major sins of the Quran. But it's not all gloom and doom, it's not well I'm here now what can I do, am I committing a haram by living in Canada, in Saskatchewan, in Saskatoon, is it haram to be here? Well it might be as I said but let me give you one example of a story that takes place at the time of the sixth Imam. Imam Jafar al Sadiq, alayhi salatu was salam. And this is an event that His Eminence, Ayatollah al Uthman Sayyid Ali al Husseini al Sistani, may Allah preserve and protect him and all of the ulama, that he quotes in his book, A Code of Practice for Muslims in the West. He quotes this event as happening at the time of the sixth Imam in a companion called Hamad al Sindi. So, Hamad is apparently a businessman, he's a merchant, he's a trader. He goes around different parts of the world of that era and he buys and sells, he trades. And sometimes he goes to Muslim areas or Muslim predominant countries. And sometimes he goes to the land of the polytheists, of the mushrikeen, of the non-believers. Maybe it had been Europe or maybe parts of Africa, the hadith doesn't mention. But he comes to the sixth Imam and he says to him, he says that I've been told that if I was to travel to a country which is populated by the polytheists, the non-Muslims, and if I was to die there, I would die in a state of disbelief and I would be raised up on the Day of Judgment as a non-believer in the camp of those people who live in that particular city or town or country. The Imam said to him that basically, yeah, that's a reality. But then the Imam says that, let me ask you a question. The Imam says that when you go to those countries, do you speak about us, about the Ahlul Bayt, a.s. Do you tell your people that you're trading with, that you're doing business with, do you talk to them about the Ahlul Bayt, about Islam, about the Prophet, about the Quran, about Allah? And he says, of course I do. I'm there on business, but I also make it a point to propagate the religion. And then the Imam says, well, when you're in the Muslim countries, the Muslim predominant, the heavily populated Muslim countries, do you talk about us, the Ahlul Bayt? And he says, well, no, it's not always practical or possible. I do what I can. And the Imam says that were you to die over there in the non-Muslim land because you were a person actively propagating the message of the religion of Islam and the Ahlul Bayt, you would be raised up on the Day of Judgment as an ummah, as a nation unto yourself. You would be a man who would be on his own, basically in his own group. Because you were going to non-Muslim countries, but you weren't just there to make money to send it back home. right? You weren't just there to make a quick buck. No, you were concerned about the spreading of the, prop- of the propagation of the religion. And that should give us... A room to think about what are we doing in Canada. I'm not going to pass judgment and say that where's haram for us to be here, no. We all have to look at our own lives, look in the mirror and say what am I doing for the message of the Ahlul Bayt a.s.a.s. You know, I wasn't asked to say this but because it came up as we heard the announcement asking for donations and membership drive and to make sure that these functions can continue this is one way. Maybe you will say, I don't have the ability to go and give a lecture. Okay, fine. Maybe you might have the ability to go and put, a, put some quotes on Twitter, or you're on Instagram, or you're on Facebook. Maybe you don't have the ability to do that, but you have money. Then you should be supporting this center, other communities, other centers, other institutions that are in Canada, that are in North America, that are propagating the message of Allah Muhammad. Because if you can't do the work directly, then at least support those organizations, those people, those groups that are doing the job for you, and maybe through that, Allah will allow us to live in this re- in this country and to make the benefit of it, and at the same time that we will not be reneging on our responsibilities of conveying the teachings of Ali Muhammad, Allah Muhammad, alayhimus salatu was I want to try and answer three questions tonight on this topic of There being that 124,000 prophets but one religion I want to ask and first of all and ask and hopefully answer tonight that Why are there so many religions? And what is it in the Quran when Allah says that Islam is the final religion What does that mean? Number two is that what is the outcome of people who do not follow Islam today? We may have friends, we may have family who are not Muslim. Are they all bound to hell? Will they all burn in the fire of hell because they don't follow our version of Islam? Or is there room for salvation for other than the Muslims? And other than the Shias? And other than the Shia ethna And other than those who come to or who don't come to the Muharram Majalis? And question number three is that how do we as Muslims interact with people who we work with, who we go to school with, who we are uh, neighbors with, knowing the fact that they don't follow Islam, that they don't follow the teachings of the Quran and the message of Muhammad and Muhammad Alayhi as-salatu Allah! First thing we have to recognize is that every prophet that came from Allah, those 124,000 prophets, however many had a book and a scripture, they all taught Islam. So what you and I see out there today as this manifestation of Judaism, of Christianity, Prophet Musa did not teach Judaism. Prophet Ibrahim, as the Quran says, Allah clearly says that Ibrahim was not a Jew or a Christian. kana Ibrahimu, wala Nasranian. He wasn't a Jew or a Christian, but he was a Hanif. He was a Muslim and he was not a polytheist. Jesus, if you ask the Christians today, what religion did Jesus preach? Well, we believe he taught Islam, submission to God. He did not teach Christianity. He didn't say, come and follow me and worship me. He taught Islam. So that's the first thing to keep in mind, is that every prophet that we see in the history, whether we know their name or not, they all taught one religion, which is Islam. As Allah says, إِنَّ in the Islam. Indeed, the only deen, the only religion acceptable to God is Al-Islam, is submission to God. Now, obviously, submission will take a different form in every era. At the time of Prophet Nuh, his message was Islam, but it was limited because of the limits and the confines on humanity at that time. You fast forward to, let's say, Prophet Musa, what he gave to Banu Israel, the children of Israel, was Islam, but it was limited in that geographic region that they inhabited, limited in in the time that they were in. It wasn't meant to go on forever. Same with Prophet Isa, his teachings were limited to a group of people who were the Bani Israel who were expected to follow him. And we see this in the Quran, if you look at chapter uh, Surah as saff where Allah quotes uh, Prophet Isa as saying Ya Bani Israel, inni Rasulullahi ilaykum, that I am a prophet sent to you to the Bani Israel, to the Jewish community. He was sent to them for them to convert from the teachings of Musa to his teachings. And then obviously with Rasulullah coming on the scene, people are expected to now follow his version or his teachings of Islam. The way I, I like to understand or give the example of all of these different prophets and their Islam, so to speak, is like that device that many of you hold in your hand, your smartphone. Whether it's an iOS or an Android device, As you know, every year there becomes, there comes a system upgrade, right? iOS goes from 10 to 11 to 12 to 13 to 14. Google will introduce a new operating, or update to Android every year. They'll change the naming convention, they'll add a new functionality to the operating system. As the hardware gets better, so does the software. There was a time when phones didn't have cameras, Then cameras came on the scene so the software had to advance and adapt to the hardware change. Religion is the same. As humanity was progressing, societies were becoming more complex and diverse. Relationships became more intertwined. You know, economies began to develop. People were trading, buying and selling, marriage, all of these things were happening. Allah had to continuously tweak the operating system. It was always Islam, just like IOS is always IOS from version 1 all the way to let's say 14, but there are different iterations, there are different advancements. And similar is Islam, the religion of Allah, it had to go through advancement gradually because humanity was developing gradually. Now we get to a point today in 2021, there is no more prophet to come. But we know that we have 12 Imams that were succeeding Rasulullah. The 12th Imam won't bring a new Islam. But he will purify our Islam of the corruption, of the deviation, of the uh, alterations we have made into it. But it will be the same Islam but the pure version of it. right? Just like you have stock Android and then you have companies that add on to Android and they make their own iteration. The 12th Imam will bring stock Islam. It will be a pure Islam that we might not even recognize. And there's a hadith about this where the, the hadith says, when the 12th Imam makes his advent, he will bring a quote unquote new Quran and a new Islam, and he will be very harsh and stern with the Arabs. The new Islam is not a new version, it is the pure Islam that we have corrupted. The Qur'an the 12th Imam will bring is not a new Qur'an hiding in a cave. No, it is the the true teachings of the Qur'an that we have perverted and deviated. So all of the prophets brought Islam, we've twisted, we've changed the religion, and it has to then go back to the pure, unadulterated version of that religion. And because of that, because of all of the prophets bringing one religion, that's why I say that this is the final path. And had we been alive at the time of Prophet Jesus, and we met him, and we saw his miracles, and we saw the way he carried himself, may Allah bless him as a beloved Prophet of Allah. And as we know, he will return with the 12th Imam to establish justice, to remove tyranny. He will, as the hadith say, he will destroy the cross, he will kill the pig, he will bring the Christians onto the path of Islam, onto this path that we are on today. But had we been there at that time, and we were a member of Bani Israel, we would have converted to Prophet Isa. And then obviously we would not have lived the 600 years to see Rasulullah, but maybe our great-great-great-grandchildren would have. And we would have told them that when the Prophet comes, the last Prophet comes, follow him. And so through that line, we would continue in Islam through the previous Prophets until we would have gotten, or our children would have gotten to, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Now, some people might wonder why did the splits come? Why is there Judaism? Why is there Christianity? Why is there Islam? Why are there all the other isms in the world today? And you know the strange reality of why there are splits in humanity based on religion is not because of ignorance. You and I would have thought that people deviated and split and made their own religions or uh, created their own religion from their prophets because of ignorance, because of being jahil. But actually, the Quran says that the divisions came about in humanity because of knowledge. The divisions became apparent in society after the prophets came, not because of being in a state of jahala of being ignorant, but because of having knowledge. Seems a bit strange, doesn't it? Why? How can you deviate when you're getting when you're getting knowledge from a prophet? But if you look at the Quran, for example, in chapter number three, uh, Surat Al Imran, verse ninety one, and this verse or this theme, this motif comes many times in the Quran. Um, it says, for example, in Nadina in in Islam that indeed the only religion with Allah is Islam. but then what does Allah say immediately after that? that Allah says that their differences did not arise in human society between those who are given the book, who are given teachings by Allah, except after knowledge came to them because of the fact that they basically felt that they had a monopoly on religion. So the the um, Bani Israel, the Jewish community, they felt, and you can read this in the Quran, in Surah al-Baqarah is replete with the story of Bani Israel. They felt that they were the gods, they felt that they were God's chosen people. They were given. Hundreds, if not thousands of prophets. Prophet Musa saved them from the Pharaoh. They split the water. They were given manna and salwa, the food from, you know, uh, specially designed for them. Nabi Musa would hit the ground and 12 springs of water would gush out. They asked for clouds. Clouds would be given for them that they would walk in the shade of the cloud. They were given so many blessings but then when Prophet Isa comes with the with the Injil, with the evangel, with a new set of teachings, they get ilm, they get knowledge from it. But because they recognize that they would no longer be in that chosen position status, that knowledge that came to them from the next prophet what made them separate because of their own animosity, their own hatred, their own. Wanting to to remain on their path and people to follow them for the rabbis to collect the money from the community To become famous Because of that they began to split and obviously that's why you have Judaism and Christianity today and When Rasulullah comes on the scene with with the Islam, we know that some Jews converted to the Prophet some Christians converted to Islam But those who didn't, did not convert because they were in a position in society. They were getting money, they were getting influence, they were getting power, people were respecting them, people were kissing their feet, kissing their hand, washing their feet. And they thought, well, if I accept Islam, the new prophet, the new religion, I'm gonna lose all of these perks. So it was out of animosity of the prophets that they decided to split religion. Otherwise, Allah wanted, Allah had the irada, the intention for humanity to be on one path. But unfortunately, as human beings, we made ourselves into various groups. You know, you can look at it even from the event of Ghadir. Rasulullah didn't want the Shias and Sunnis, or the Muslims to split into Shia and Sunni. Ghadir happens. And what happens? Some people take the path of the Walaya of Ali السلام, and we know that others went through the way of the Khulafa, to the companions of the Prophet. That wasn't intended by Allah. That wasn't the, the goal of Rasulullah to divide Islam. It was the people because of personal benefits. Because of the fact that they would lose, uh, you know, favorite status in the, com- in the community at that time that the split happened even within the faith of Islam. So with all of these different paths, all of the different ways, and some of them we don't doubt will get a person to Allah. If, if a person today in 2021, living in one part of Canada, let's say, has never heard about islam allah will not throw that person in hell because they were never given the message but those who knew about islam who studied it who acknowledged it but because of personal benefit they didn't want to convert and i've met people like that i met a, a professor in a in a western university many many years ago who has been who was an who is or was an expert in islam Over 30 years, he's been studying this religion. He's translated books and hadith of our imams into English. He's probably done more service for the community than most of us, myself included, have done in our lifetime. But he remained a Christian. Because his uh, approach of Islam, it was not as a way to learn the truth, it was a way to make money. It was a career. People who work at McDonald's, You might not love their food. You don't care for a Big Mac. You care for the money, right? And so there are people out there who are, you know, you have two different, you have scholars who are scholars which we call devotional scholars. And then you have scholars for dollars, right? And some people are scholars for dollars. Their goal is to make money, whether it's on the member or on the podium in the university, right? they might not make it to heaven because Allah will say to them maybe that you knew the truth, you've studied it for 30, 40, 50 years and yet you stayed on the path because it was good for your career, because you made money on it, you could write a book and the royalties were flowing in. But we don't want to talk about those, but what about people that we know, people in this city who have never heard about Islam, who have never heard of Imam Hussein? What about those people who have never been introduced because we never went and told them about the Ahlul Bayt, alayhum We have never told them about Karbala. What about those people? Where do they end up? Is it straight to hell? Well, obviously not because that would go against the justice of Allah. And so I'll just give you one example of a verse and I'll move on from chapter number three. Again, Surah Al-Imran, verse number 62. Allah tells us, ladina amanu indeed those people who believe meaning in the message of prophet muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wasallam walladhina hadu hadu those who are what we call the jews wan nasara and the christians wassabeein the sabians who according to some this group does not exist anymore. Some people say that they uh, basically had latched on to Prophet Yahya, John the Baptist, who was the uh, related to, he was actually the first cousin, if I'm not mistaken, of Maryam <laughs> But again, some people said that they don't exist anymore. Man amana billah, <laughs> whoever of them believes in Allah, wal akhir, in the last day, in the day of judgment. Wa amila salihan, and they commit, or they perform righteous actions. فَلَهُمْ أَجْرُهُمْ وَلَا خَوْفٌ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَا They will have no fear, no grief, and they will basically uh, be in a state of comfort. Because they believed in the Islam of their time. They were not told about the Quran, about the Ahlul Bayt, about Abu Abdullah. They never heard about Imam Ali, so we can't hold them guilty for something that they did not know about. So, ultimately, as I move on to the third and my last part of this three questions, is that their outcome will be left to Allah to judge. We are concerned about our akhirat, not about our neighbor, where they're going. We're not wanting to pass judgment on other people. That's not us to do. That's the job of Allah. Allah will gauge everybody and put them in the rightful place because He will not do injustice to anybody. The third and last part what I want to mention for tonight as we conclude is how do we deal with non-Muslims when we live in their midst. Today in Saskatoon there's what, maybe 250,000, the population around there. Maybe the Muslims make up maybe, what, a few thousand, maybe even 10,000, the entire Muslim community. Most of us probably have neighbors who are non-Muslims. We go to work with non-Muslims, we go to school with people who don't follow our ideology? How do we deal with them? Do we ignore them? Do we disrespect them? Are we allowed to curse them? Are we allowed to, uh, you know, act in a way that would not be becoming of a follower of the Ahlul Bayt The answer comes in chapter number 60, Surah Al-Muntahana, verse number eight. It's a beautiful verse. This is one of those ayat, one of the ayat of the Quran that we should engrave, put it on paper, frame it and keep it in our home. All of the Quran is obviously beautiful, but this verse in in, in particular, Allah gives us the blueprint of how to deal with non-Muslims who are not belligerent, who are not violent, who are not uh, aggressive against us. And that's the majority of them. There are some out there who are violent against Muslims, but they're the minority. And so Allah says in this verse, لَا يَنْحَاكُمُ اللَّهُ عَنِ lam لَمْ يُقَاتِلُوكُمْ فِي الدِّينَ وَلَمْ يُخْرِجُوكُمْ مِنْ دِيَارِكُمْ أَنْ تَبَرُّوهُمْ وَتُقْسِتُوا إِلَيْهِمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُحِبُّ الْمُقْسِتِينَ The verse is beautiful, Allah says that Allah does not forbid you in regards to those people who have not made war against you because of your religion, nor has Allah forbidden you to deal with people who have not kicked you out of your homes, that you deal with them with kindness and justice. Because in the Allah loves people who are kind and just. We came to Canada or many of you came to Canada maybe as immigrants, some as refugees, some of maybe the youth, the young brothers and sisters were born here in Canada. We haven't been kicked out of our homes in Canada yet. (laughs) and Inshallah, it will never happen. We are not persecuted because of being Muslims in Canada. We can go to work and have a room to pray in. I used to work in corporate Canada for 10 years. We could easily go and make our prayers. We had prayer rooms. We had areas to make wudu. Our manager would would tell them we need Eid off the night before. Because of the moon sighting, they would give us Eid off. We needed Ashura off. We'd get the time off. We're not being oppressed in Canada because of our religion. Our neighbors are respectful to us. When we go out, we say hi to them. They might watch over our house when we go on vacation and vice versa. We are also reciprocating and being good human beings to them. So Allah says, there's no problem. Deal with these people with justice, with respect, with fairness, with kindness. You know, as Allah tells us in another verse of the Quran, as I begin to conclude that, when you deal with kindness, Allah says that maybe those people who had a hatred for you might change over and become your best friends. They'll respect you as Muslims. Maybe they'll want to learn about Islam. Maybe they'll want to come to the center one day and say, show me what you guys do, how you pray, how you worship God. I want to learn. And that's a great opportunity for us to then introduce them to Islam as taught by Muhammad and Ali Muhammad alayhi was salatu was salam sallu Muhammad wa ali Muhammad oh. Oh.